Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Janine Ouellette. Her memoir, The Part That Burns, was a 2021 Kirkus Best 100 indie book and a finalist for the Next Generation Indie Book Award with starred reviews from Kirkus and Publishers Weekly. Her work appears widely in literary journals and anthologies, including Misaligned, Women Writing About Men, Women's Lives, Multicultural Perspectives, and Passed On, Daughters Write About Father Loss, Lack, and Legacy. She teaches through the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop, the University of Minnesota, and Elephant Rock, a writing program she founded in 2012. She is working on her first novel. Welcome, Janine. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy that you're here and just in awe of your beautiful memoir, The Part That Burns, and really, really grateful that you have time to share some insight and thoughts about the writing process with me today. So for people who have not read your memoir, The Part That Burns, can you talk a little bit about it in the way that you would when trying to explain what the book is about? Yes. Okay. I'm going to give that a try. Isn't that almost the, hard, <laughs> the hardest thing? Yeah. It's running. like the, ele- the elevator pitch. I mean, yeah. I suppose like the part that you would see on the Goodreads blurb or, you know, just, you know, what is it about without, without, we, we don't go into the nuts and bolts yet as much, just like what you think the overview is. I'm just going to dive right in because it's a hard question to answer with my book, or at least I found it difficult to answer because, you know, put frankly and put bluntly, this memoir is about recovering and reclaiming after childhood sexual abuse. That's really what it's about. Mm -hmm. And, but that's not a great elevator pitch. And the fact of the matter is that I know from experience as a as a writer, as a teacher of writing, and as a reader who, you know, talks often and avidly about books that a lot of people feel some very understandable hesitation to read about anything in which a young child is is badly hurt. Mm-hmm. And so I really struggled with that, to, to be honest, in terms of how to describe my book and what would the, that jacket copy really say? You know, mm-hmm. what would that Goodreads blurb or, you know, the Amazon blurb? Like, how do you talk about a book that, you know, from the outset, you know, has like a, a really, a really strong content warning? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and I well, think which that... is separate from, which is like, there's the book at its core and essence, which is what you are achieving and trying to achieve when you're writing it and, and what you have fashioned. And then what you're saying, it sounds like, is then there's a, the knowledge that it's a difficult topic. And so mm-hmm. you have to like acknowledge what it is about and honor what it's about because it is your story while also realizing that it may be tricky for some people to kind of digest. Yeah, exactly that. And also that part of reclamation, part of recovery and choosing, you know, and and I use that word, I guess, really carefully, because for my speaking only for myself, I had a 
particular set of circumstances that allowed me to make this choice. I don't even, you know, think that that in itself is a privilege. It's not a given, Mm -hmm. but to really choose reclamation means um, to me, not, not being silenced, you know, or not papering over, you know, this, this one core truth. Yeah. So I, so I found that really difficult in the way that I handled it in the book description is it's like, it's really just pointed toward, it's like, oh, you know, it's it's about a young mother who grew up in this way and that way and the other way in these various landscapes and kind of in constant um, state of dodging, you know, her mother's erratic behavior, her stepfather's mm-hmm. groping is, is the word I chose, mm-hmm. which is a you know, an imprecise word. And, but I felt like it was, it was enough to, to broaden that description because it's about so much more. Mm -hmm. And the time period of the book is not really grounded in that childhood period. It's grounded Mm -hmm. in a, like a decade of young motherhood Mm -hmm. where the narrator is really grappling, you know, with the full force of her past coming back. And, and, you know, what's interesting about it is that, so I, in this milieu, in this in the memoir milieu in the genre, I haven't read an, an abundance of memoirs that express childhood sexual abuse, you know, incest. I certainly I, I read books like that, but it's not my area of expertise. And I have interviewed Laura Davis as well. And so we talked about that because she had originally written The Courage to Heal. And, and that was something that blew the idea of childhood sexual abuse wide open in the popular culture. And what I wonder about is writing those scenes and writing those experiences in a way that is not harmful or too harmful to the memoirist and takes into consideration the reader. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that and how you navigated that. Mm. Yeah, and I really appreciate that question. Thank you, because that was very central to my process. Mm. Is um, And it's why it took me a very long time to be able to write this book. And I have written about that and talked about it. I, I'm interested in um, like transformation of trauma. And I'm interested in artistic and creative techniques that mm. are very um, powerful for for facilitate, facilitating that kind of transformation that I'm talking about, which mm-hmm. is um, where we can take raw experience and make it into art in a way that doesn't dilute the truth of it, but actually mm-hmm. I feel like can amplify the truth of it while mm-hmm. still being, for lack of a better word, I guess a more gracious, a safer presentation to a reader. Yes, yes. And that so- was really apparent in, in the scenes that dealt with that. Oh, I really, I really appreciate that. So I am, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really a big proponent of the use of various constraints, uh, literary constraints and other experimental techniques to transform. Well, actually to, in for a lot of reasons in writing, mm-hmm. just for their aliveness and the way they can nudge us into ways of expressing things that are outside of our um, default mode Mm -hmm. or outside of, you know, the language that might come naturally or be familiar. So I'm, I'm not a poet by training at all. And I've only published one thing that was called a poem in my Mm -hmm. whole life. You know, I'm really pretty solidly a prose writer, but I love poetic technique Mm -hmm. for what it can do to prose writing. So the idea of putting the emphasis on the how instead of 
or at least with equal weight as the what. Mm, mm. Yes, that's so interesting. How did you come to that? I mean, and I guess it's hard to sort of distill your writing experience and your writing life uh, and really put sort of a, you know, to quantify it. But I'm curious when you hit on this and how you knew that it was working, that idea of how as important or more important than the what in delivering. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I do know. <laughs> I oh, know okay. Exact, you know, there's an anecdote, and I, I have written about that too. And I know you said you were going to link to some resources um, mm-hmm. at the end of the episode. But I did a craft essay on this a few years ago for Cleaver mm-hmm. Magazine, and actually, that was a um, revised version of a lecture that I gave during my MFA program. So you're really hitting on a topic that's near and dear to me, Roni. Like, mm-hmm. I've thought a lot about this. I talk about it. I teach it, and I've written about it. But for me, what happened was that I took a a workshop. It was it was such an accidental thing, as can sometimes happen for mm-hmm. people. But I was working. I taught elementary and middle school for a, a big chunk of my life, like a little bit over a decade. Mm-hmm. And it, I was teaching in a school where my children attended. I was. Um, they received tuition remission. We couldn't have afforded the school, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was just like one of those. That that too was kind of a quirk of fate, right? That mm-hmm. I was teaching in the school. And while I was teaching there, I was enrolled in a three-week residential teacher training program where I did a whole bunch of different things. But one of the workshops or one of the courses that I signed up for that went over the span of the whole three weeks was a writing course with a poet and movement teacher by the name of Paul Matthews. And he's British. And, you know, I don't think very many, if any Americans would know his poetry, I don't think he really publishes widely, um, you know, in the in the journals that most of us are reading. I don't, he has a couple of poetry books out. But in any mm-hmm. case, I took the workshop mainly because one of my colleagues recommended it. And I was a little bit hesitant. Although I was teaching at the time, I've been writing I think I published for the first time in my early 20s. Mm-hmm. And so with a long trajectory of like all different kinds of things from journalism to like I did a, a children's book that came out when I was 26. So like all different kinds of stuff and a lot, a lot of essays. And so I and at that time, I was also freelancing for a local magazine. I was doing a column and a lot of cover stories. And it kind of felt like oh, that's the last thing I really Mm -hmm. want to do is a writing workshop. I was, you know, signed up for painting and I, you know, like a a bunch of interesting things that felt, I don't know, like lighter, but I went ahead and did it. And it was, it was, it was so nutty. It was just Mm -hmm. the zaniest writing experience I've ever had. Yeah, completely, completely not what I was expecting and completely revitalizing for my writing practice. What I didn't know going in is kind of like how jaded and automatic I had become in my writing. Like I knew how to do a 7,000 word narrative journalism, you know, kind of cover story on a topic that would be really you know, well-crafted, like well-executed. And I would think by the time I got to the end of that, and, you know, saw the finished version and it would come out in print that it would it would feel like, oh, like, yeah, like I would have this feeling like I, I did it. I really made something. And by the end, I would like it. But like the whole time doing it, I would mostly hate it, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> like just like, oh, like it would just be such a chore to to make myself do it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sure every writer out there can identify <laughs> with that. And it's not that I never feel that anymore. Of course, mm-hmm. we all do. But I didn't realize 
the degree to which that way of working had had become the norm and the thing that had brought me to the page in the first place when I was in my early 20s like the 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 feeling of discovery and the feeling of not knowing and the feeling of um like just you know being in a dark forest feeling your way Mm -hmm. um and not knowing where it was going to take you and the thrill of that um I didn't realize the degree to which that had evaporated Hmm. from my writing process and so Paul uses literary constraints he had has doing tons of collaborative writing exercises like the kind of stuff that you would think oh that sounds awful (laughs) Um, (laughs) like for a solitary writer like I don't want to do that (laughs) oh tell me about it like I was like this I I I really was like this is like not what I like I want my money back (laughs) (laughs) which I had not paid any money so there was nothing to get back but something happened really quickly into the workshop and it was during a collaborative writing exercise called the interrupter and it's kind of comes from improv you're trying to tell a story and you're with a partner and the partner's job is to interrupt you and to say basically (laughs) you know no it didn't or no it wasn't or no you won't or you know just Mm -hmm. anything that like cuts you off at the knees and I was trying to tell this story um and I'm you know pretty serious introverted melancholic you know kind of person like give me a sad story (laughs) right I I just I just want a good sad story my poor (laughs) husband you know we're trying to pick a movie is you know just oh my gosh it sounds like my life too my husband sees all these memoirs and books lying around he's like how can you read this right why because it makes me so happy yeah (laughs) exactly yeah Um, Nothing more uplifting than a really, really sad story. Like if I didn't cry, you know, I'm disappointed. Like you make me cry. So I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to like, wow, my partner, like with a sad, you know, and my son had recently broken his collarbone and was also going through some other, you know, you know, go go to your mother fears, go to to your mother wounds and you're going to have something good. Right. (laughs) So I was trying to do that. And I was paired with this really wonderful hilarious young gay male music teacher from Chicago who was just he was the best partner for me because he just was interrupting me in all the right places (laughs) and 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 it was like taking my sacred little story you know and and just making it into a mockery and and so before I knew it like I was really laughing to the point of I was crying out of hilarity (laughs) and and it it, you know, I never did anything with that story. Like I didn't, it didn't become anything, but it, it shifted something and I began to really see, and then, you know, millions of other incredible writing exercises through the course of those three weeks where I began to really experience something that was so much closer to what I had come to the page with mm-hmm. in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so I brought that into the writing of the part that burns. I used a lot of, um, exercises that I learned from Paul and ones that I made up for myself and ones that I learned from other people to like get at this material from a side door, you know, to get in there with a little bit more levity and a little bit more playfulness and a little bit more uh, sense of the unexpected. So here's a story I've carried with me my whole entire life, you know, since Mm -hmm. I was three or four years old that significantly shaped the person who I've become. And yet, I was able to get in and find completely new ways to think about it and talk about it and present it. So that in and of itself was a, was a major gift. And I really, you know, my, my hope and prayer was that that would be felt in the work. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And I didn't know going in that it wasn't exactly linear. You know, I didn't understand, you know, because it's sort of a collection, right? I mean, how would you describe the structure of the book if you can? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the readers gave me, one of Split Lips team of readers who recommended the manuscript back when I was, you know, querying and submitting called it elliptical. Mm. And I really liked that idea, you know, that because we swing forward in time, but then we go back again and then we swing forward again. And, and we do that throughout the whole manuscript in a way where, you know, we're always going, it is sort of like, two steps forward and one step back kind of, you know, and then another mm-hmm. steps forward until we get to the end. So we do continually go, you know, further forward in time until the penultimate chapter that includes my adult daughter. Mm. Yes. Um, and I love talking about structure too, because, you know, in the writing process, did you know, I love asking this question and of course, you know, everyone answers differently, but did you know going in what your structure was going to be or did you find your way? I had to find my way because I tried a bunch of different things. And I, at one time I tried to novelize it. It was, you know, really an attempt to fashion a traditional narrative arc out of this mm-hmm. material. And yeah, I tried a, a lot of different things. I, I tried a different fragmented structure that was much more vignette based so that if you took all the pieces that are in the published version and you took them apart... And you arranged each, because a lot of the pieces in the published version, like Four Dogs, maybe five, is made up of, you know, I guess five (laughs) significant vignettes that are quite long. And then, you know, some other pieces are little tiny vignettes and other pieces are made up of smaller vignettes. But anyway, if you took apart the whole thing and took a scissors and cut it up and put it on the floor scene by scene, and then arranged those vignettes in more or less chronological order. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried that. So I tried a lot of different things. And ultimately, I came back to where I started. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because these pieces were not all of them, but a good handful were written as standalone pieces that were, you know, published independently. And I, and that's how I knew I was making a book was when I got to the fourth or fifth one of these pieces and mm. I realized, well, that I, I keep doing this. Like I keep writing this material. I was theoretically working on a different book in grad school, <laughs> but I, on the side was writing these pieces. And then, you know, there was that moment where that aha moment where I thought, oh, it, I think I, I think this is adding up to a book. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I'm accidentally writing the book that I've been trying my whole life to write. Mm-hmm. I think, I think right. I'm doing it. And right. so, so you I even came, came at that in a different way. Like your approach oh, to that was sort of a surprise too then. It was a complete surprise actually. And I had to talk to people in my program and get special permission to work with a creative nonfiction advisor for my last semester because I realized, oh, actually this is going to be my thesis. You know, mm. the stuff that's been like my side project is actually my thesis. And so, um, yeah, so that's what I did. And then and then ultimately the version that became a book, it was like going all the way back to the beginning and looking at these disparate pieces that were in conversation with each other and letting them stand mostly as they were with some revision, you know, mm-hmm. to make them work together to eliminate unintentional repetition and to Mm -hmm. fill in some gaps. And then I had to write, you know, then it was a process of identifying gaps and saying, Mm -hmm. okay, I need, I need an essay here about this, or I need a piece here about that. Um, 
Yeah, and so that's how it came. That's how the structure found itself. And I thought, I wonder. I wonder if this will work. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Mm-hmm. It's so ex- it's so experimental, and it's it's so trial and error. And then it's always it always kind of catches me up as a writer because it's subjective, and I've been looking at the work for so long, and it's hard sometimes to know if it's achieving what I want it to. And I, I do want to ask you about the role of voice in memoir, and and how you come to understand that and how you know that you've hit on a voice that is working in, and, and what your thoughts are about it as a teacher? Well, I'm teaching a class on voice right now in part because I love to teach what I love to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we hear, and I'm sure this will resonate with you again and again and again, you know, we go to our writing conferences, et cetera, et cetera. And we go to the panels and we listen to the, the writers and the editors and the agents and we hear oh, that, you know, they're looking for a voice, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just feel like that, it, that it, it, it can mean so many things and voice is so multifaceted and we have like the, we, we have our voice, you know, as a human and as a writer, and then there's like the narrator voice. And I, I don't see those as the same. Mm-hmm. And then we have the character voice, you know, and so for example, in, in the part that burns, I have a child narrator. And so there's a pretty significant evolution of voice in this manuscript. Mm-hmm. Um, and that child narrator voice is very specific and very precise to where she is in time. Mm-hmm. And she's also serving a very specific function in particular dealing with, you know, some of the really hot material that she doesn't yeah. understand. And, you know, so the reader is, you know, 10 miles ahead mm-hmm. of that narrator. Um, so I, I love voice. And I think that, you know, I, like I said, I'm teaching it right now. So I'm just really in the thick of it. But one of the things that I would say about voice that I have come to believe very strongly through my own experience in writing and also through, um, the the course that I'm teaching right now is that we talk a lot about authentic voice. And I think that that can be misinterpreted and misunderstood. I think that there's a difference. And like I said earlier, there's a difference between like a default or an automatic voice and the voice that we are really working hard to build as a writer. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't see anything inauthentic about that um, any more than, you know, a, a singer trains their voice, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. to perform or, um, you know, an, an, a, a dancer is going to have a style, but that style is earned, mm-hmm. you know, th- through practice and hard mm-hmm. work. And I think the same is true of writing. And I, and like, yeah, I, I just want to underscore that. Like, I don't think there's anything inauthentic about that. And I think that one of the things that I'll circle back to is that I found that helped me tremendously with voice in this book was, was working with some exercises and literary constraints that helped me to defamiliarize um, not just the topic that I, you know, had become overly familiar with Mm. because I lived it, but also the language, you know, to, to find ways to put words together um, and juxtapose concepts that I wouldn't have come to automatically. 
And I, and I think that that, that is part of voice actually. Well, I think that it's really, I think that voice for me, structure and voice are really key for feeling free in the writing. And unfortunately, neither of them come to me right away. You know, they don't come to me right away. Voice a little bit more often now, but when, when I was writing my memoir, I had to really work on that and figure out what, what does this person know? How much is to be revealed? You know, how much do I share and, and how conscious is this voice? And I think for me, and I've heard from other memoirists as well, that this idea of how much license the narrator, the memoirist has in the older memories, you know, that is one of the facets that can be a little confusing until you master, until you figure out what you want to express. Roni, what do you mean when you say how much license the narrator has with the older memories? Do you mean like to fill in blanks? or Yeah, to... like to come back and to the awareness of the younger mm-hmm. you or the person in that situation who is very different from the person that you are now writing it. The -hmm. person who has the consciousness now to write the book and to understand the memory and to kind of put it together in a way that makes sort of some sense that maybe the person experiencing it didn't have, didn't have that understanding. And so I had to figure out how to get in there to the scene and not disrupt the old me that was experiencing Mm -hmm. the scene, but shine a light on what was going on. Yeah. You know, and it took me a while. Well, I think you're hitting the nail on the head in terms of what is the perennial challenge for virtually all, not just memoirists, but anyone who's writing, you know, personal material is that balance. Sue William Silverman, one of my mentors, calls it the voice of innocence and the voice of experience. And where do those two overlap and how much real estate do we allow the voice of experience? Because like you said, you know, it can be disruptive to the to the scene building really, or like the immersion experience. So yeah, I think that's, that's really for everyone, right? The, the, yes. a, a central question. Yes. And I think like, as you're writing the memoir, I mean, you know, when you, when you think about how you came to decide to share these stories, and it sounds like, am I right that um, you were working on another project in graduate school and then these other stories just started to come to you more frequently and you realized you had been spending time with these memories and this experience and that's when you shifted? Yeah, it was really a matter of practicality. I was I had made some commitments to myself when I went into grad school because of the significant loans I was taking out basically, mm. you know, to do that, that one of the commitments that I made to myself was that I would come out with a manuscript. And the other commitment that I made to myself is that I would be publishing along the way. I wanted to come out like with a, you know, essentially with a fortified writing CV. So because the project I was working on was a novel, that wasn't really affording me Mm -hmm. the opportunity to publish. Mm -hmm. And so in order to meet that other commitment to myself, that's why I was working on this, these side projects, you know, um, So I would just be looking at calls for submission and um, come up with ideas. But to respond to those calls or contests, a lot of times I'd be entering contests and stuff. And that was actually one of the reasons why I shifted because I didn't, you know, I I kept having these, I was getting some feedback. I was getting traction. I was getting feedback that these, these pieces were working because they would, you know, either win a contest or be a finalist or an honorable mention. And I, I, I was 
starting to be like, okay, this can't be a coincidence, yeah. <laughs> you know, that this yeah. is like the four, fourth time this has happened or something. And that that's when I thought, okay. And because I, especially I think because of the dynamic where I was seeing these pieces as just like, it's too much of a stretch to say like expedient, but they were written really, truly. I was like, okay, I want to come out. Like I want to be ready with a manuscript and I want to be able to reach out to agents and stuff. So I want to have a little track record of literary publishing, which I didn't really have going into mm -hmm. grad school at all. And so that was the idea. And uh, yeah, so that, then I got that feedback and I thought, well, wait a minute actually, maybe this is my project. Yes. Yeah. Isn't it interesting when that happens? And, and you know, in terms of taboo topics, because I know you have an interest in discussing a little bit about what, what is considered taboo and what people want to stay away from and what they have in terms of expectations for what writing should contain. And so do you have students who are concerned about exploring and I, I hesitate to even use the word taboo because I feel like that adds a judgment to it. But typically taboo topics, how do you help students get their heads around writing those if, if those subjects are calling to them? Mm -hmm. I, I really appreciate that question because speaking for myself, and I find this, you know, I'm going to go here because it's what I hear not infrequently from my students as well is that it's not always so much a fear of self-revelation, you know, with taboo topics. And, you know, we can say, we could use any word, it doesn't have to be taboo, but like sometimes I call this material like hot, like, mm, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of times it's more that there's a, a concern around being inartistic you know, mm. or overdone. Like I, I went to a writing conference in Minneapolis, I don't know, seven or so years ago now, it was back in 2015. And it was one of those pitch conferences, you know, mm -hmm. where you get to blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> not, not, not obviously not really my cup of tea. Um, <laughs> but I get why they're great for some people if you are extroverted and etc. Um, but anyway, um, they were like, brutal that they, they had an agent panel and they all lined up blood and I was there with a friend whose husband died of brain cancer beautiful writer and the agents one of the agents said and I don't remember so I'm not protecting anyone but it was just like put point blank like you know we're really sorry if this is harsh but we just don't need any more cancer stories I know. Um, and, and I have actually seen childhood sexual abuse on the list of, you know, you get, you see these things, you see it on Twitter, you see it, you know, and on agent blogs, but like the topics we don't need any more of. And, um, mm. and there's a, there's a, even this even leaks down into like college um, application essays, where if you read, I used to help students, you know, coach them, um, I, not in any way that was unethical. I didn't write anyone's <laughs> essays for them. Um, I don't but, think anyone would think that of you, but go okay, ahead. Just, just being clear, you know, that can get weird, but I don't do that. Um, but this idea of like the three Ds, um, death, drugs, and divorce, we don't want to hear about it, you know, yeah. is in like the guidance for like the unofficial guidance for, for mm. kids writing their college application essays. And so, so what I'm really talking about is this fear 
of, you know, you, you have an experience, it's a profound experience that has absolutely, you know, one of the, I mean, and for childhood sexual abuse, that's just, that's just the truth. Like you, you mm. can't have that happen to you as a child and have that not literally inform it's in your body, like who you are. And then to be told by the culture at large and the gatekeepers, yeah, sorry, too many of those been there, done that, don't want to hear about it. Mm. Um, and, and so for me, that was, that really was a stumbling block. It was like, nobody wants this stupid story. <laughs> like oh, nobody gosh. wants to hear about it. And to just to get past that. And the commitment I made to myself too with this book when I switched gears and said, no, actually this is the book I'm writing mm -hmm. was all I have to do is write it. I, I can't control what happens to it. You know, if, if it doesn't get published, if nobody wants it, that's out of my control. All I can do is write what I can stand behind as, you know, a, what I can recognize as a beautiful book. And mm -hmm. that's all I can do. And what happens after that is out of my hands. And that is what I teach. Um, so that, and, and then coupled with, you know, don't hurt yourself. Like, you know, there, it can be re-traumatizing, like that is a real thing mm -hmm. when we're writing about this kind of material. And so there's ways you can take care of yourself and, I, and there's approaches like we've talked about, artistic and creative approaches that I think increase the safety level mm -hmm. for the writer. Because whenever the focus is on the craft, when the focus is on the craft and the art and there's a puzzle to it and you're figuring it out and it there's, it's, it's quite exhilarating actually. Um, and I, and that is a much safer way to enter into, you know, traumatic memories for artistic transformation. Often it can be then sort of straight up narrative because mm -hmm. it just requires you to use so many different tools and, mm -hmm. um, and it keeps the emphasis on, yeah, the beauty and effectiveness of what you're making, Mm -hmm. which is, in a, is, that's only adjacent to what actually happened. And it doesn't mm -hmm. erase what happened, but it does transform it. I, one last thing, I know I'm giving you a long answer to this question, but no, no, there's a that. poet that I went to grad school with. Her, their name is Ro, Rowan uh, Buckton. I think I have that right. Um, uh, when you link, I can send it to you, but mm -hmm. wrote this poem about a dog fight. And I've taught this poem. It's an incredible poem. And I brought Ronan in to, to the class I was teaching at the time that this poem was published. I think it was in Pink. I can't remember. But Rowan was telling us in class, and I thought this was so interesting, that they don't actually remember the, the dogfight, which they had tried to write about for many years. It was a really traumatic experience, and the one dog killed the other dog. And it was like right close up. You know, can, you can imagine mm -hmm. experiencing something like that, like on a mm -hmm. pleasant Sunday afternoon in the park with mm -hmm. children around, etc. cetera. Um, and, but that now the poem had become like an overlay of the memory of the experience. And that is beautiful. And I've experienced that as well with the part that burns, that this process, um, and I think that's in part because of the the poetic transformation, like this, you know, when I talked mm -hmm. about using poetry devices, that that transformation, it, it changes something. Mm, yeah, I think I know what you're talking about, where the, the work and the rendering of the experience becomes a little more forefront right? And it kind of layers over it. Yeah. 
it mm -hmm. layers over it and it and you know cognitive science tells us that anyway we don't actually remember what happened ever we remember the last <laughs> memory of what happened and then the yeah. last memory of that memory and so on and so on and so think about yeah that that's where the healing and writing is like that's where the the real transformation happens mm. You know, I'm wondering what are some of your favorite memoirs? You know, what have you looked to as guide or inspiration or what what do you find to be the memoirs that stick with you in our final few minutes? Yeah, um, so many, Roni. <laughs> but, you know, I one of the memoirs that um, really blew me away when I was in grad school and I've reread it since is We the Animals by Justin Torres. It's actually not published as a memoir. It's autofiction. But it's drawn largely from from um, Justin Torres's experience. It's absolutely gorgeous, stunning, short, fragmented work. I have long looked to Abigail Thomas's safekeeping as mm -hmm. a memoir that gives permission. First of all, it's beautiful. It's fragmented. It's nonlinear. It's written in a combination of first, second, and third person, <laughs> and it's wild. And yet, I I, I actually feel like it's a masterpiece um, mm. for for both what it achieves and what it inspires us to know that we can actually do if we want to, like, which is essentially anything if you can do mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, like, okay, this is what a book can be. I loved Heavy by Kiesi mm -hmm. Limon. Um, it was a, you know, couple years ago that I finally got to that. I'm always, I feel like I'm always way behind. Same. <laughs> on, on the books I'm trying to get through in my stack, um, Gina Frangello's um, Blow Your House Down mm -hmm. that came out not long after my book did. Um, just really stunning for so many reasons. Oh, and another book I just want to mention, um, and again, not a memoir and a, you know, definitely a an older, I would say classic, but is, of course, Dorothy Allison's Bastard Out of Carolina. I feel mm -hmm. like, you know, she blazed a trail. And that was for me, and I know it's not the first or maybe even one of the first, but it was for me the first book that I read. I was, you know, in my early 20s when it came out. And it was one of the first books that I read where I was consciously aware of a writer taking a profoundly ugly life experience and making a beautiful book from it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much for those. It's, it is true that it's hard to, I've read some of the ones that you've just mentioned, but there's always more that I need to get to and there's so little time, but it's a priority to read these. Do you have a piece of advice you'd like to leave uh, here in, in our last minute for writers and memoirists? Yeah, um, I guess just building on the conversation that we've been having, I would say that it's helpful to remember that it can be very liberating to come to the page with a clear and frustrating task in the form of some sort of assignment uh, that you give yourself or that you find. And the reason for that is that nothing is more creatively stifling than an empty page with nothing to push against. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if I'm making sense, but I ascribe to the John Cleese, um, you know, uh, theory, he writes a lot about creativity. And so to, 
find ourselves in open mode, or let, let me put it this way. Um, there's an evolutionary biologist, Stephen Gould. Um, he's deceased now, but um, a Harvard biologist who said that the stories that we need to examine the most closely, I'm not getting this exactly perfect, are the ones that the, what, the stories we must scrutinize most closely are the ones um, that we think we know the best. <laughs> and mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And what story do we think we know better than our own? <laughs> and so when we, when we give ourselves only the blank page, we're relying only on whatever is accessible to us, you know, mm-hmm. that's the closest to the surface. Mm-hmm. But when we have to push against something, even if whatever it is we've given ourselves to push against doesn't make it in, maybe that structure is like a scaffolding and it completely falls away. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But the process is going to lead to some really interesting and new revelations for us yeah a different Mm. just a little bit different version of the story I love that and I feel like that has come up in this conversation a little bit with the thread of that you know the structure and how we approach is so important and I don't think I really spent a lot of time thinking about that in my own writing so far and I think it it inspires me to try that I want to give it a shot with new because I always love you know I always love those different kinds of formats for creative nonfiction when I read them and I always think wow this is I really need to try this right like all those those different ways those lists and those recipes and all kinds of ways to create an an essay are just so fascinating to me and I feel like that is this is a like a, a good decision for the next patch of writing I do to just give that a shot yeah and 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 be okay if it's a big mess a big giant colossal (laughs) failure you know because you can throw away the form like I'm teaching a class for catapult right now that's on fragmentation and experimental forms and one of the writers we were talking about the hermit crab essay she was saying you know I'm always afraid it'll be gimmicky Uh and I'm like yeah exactly it really might be you know and that's good (laughs) like stare that fear right in the face and do it anyway and if it's gimmicky then don't use the gimmicky part, you know, but like, yeah. because I think we put too much uh, emphasis on product and not enough on process. Mm. So if the process leads to even one usable thing, that's a win. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So definitely. anyway. No, so, I love so, that. I love that. <laughs> so where can people, where would you like people to find you? We'll, we'll put some links in the show notes and I'll definitely add that essay in the show notes too that you, that you wrote for Cleaver. But where can people find you? I have a website. It's just JaninaOlette.com. So okay. that's a good place. And it has, yeah, it's got everything people would Everything we need. (laughs) Everything that there is to, to, yeah, be useful about me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you so much for um, sharing this time with me. And I really just so appreciate talking with you. I am so grateful to be here. Thank you so much. What a delightful conversation. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thanks for creating this lovely resource for writers. It's really an honor to be included. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. 
Thank you so much for being here.